0: We don't slut shame around here. They say we are what we eat. Does that come in organic? So, who are you eating? I believe they call that an ethical slut. Can I unplug your phone so I can charge my vibrator? I can't believe he couldn't find it. Fuck it. Let's roll. You're listening to Eat, Play, Sex with Dr. Cat. The place to up level that sexy life of yours. With expert talk on sex, love, and nutrition. Hey, lovers, and welcome to another episode of Eat, Play, Sex. I'm your
1: sex expert, Dr. Kat. Do you remember those days when you were 20 and you could literally go on forever and ever on little sleep, lots of coffee, and still be ready to go out on Friday and Saturday nights to rest on Sunday and be back in primo work or school hustle mode again on Mondays? Basically, you were superhuman. You get hit by an electric death ray to the chest only to bounce back to your feet, ready to fight the mortal combat. And I'm in my 30s and honestly, I'm loving it, except for the fact that my body is like an overprotective parent who doesn't let me do just whatever I wanna do without some serious talking to or consequences. Hashtag free Britney. This podcast is all about helping you to understand your body and how it operates so you can have the best sex and love lives because we know that if you're not feeling alive and vibrant, it's going to make so much difference and so much more challenging in your sex and love life. So I'm so happy to have on the show today, Dr. Mary Party, here to give us some insights on how our hormones impact how we show up in dating and relationships, as well as that critical relationship between our gut and our brain. Honestly, Mine are trying mediation at the moment, (laughs) lots of arguments, and it's been hard to get them to communicate more effectively. So let's clear up some shit today, (laughs) literally. (laughs) But before we get to Dr. Mary, I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank you for your reviews on iTunes. If there's a favorite episode or a topic you'd like me to touch on, be sure to put it in the review so I can catch it. I love reading what you write, and sometimes I even share on my socials. So if you want a little shout out, give me some love. And because my goal here is to help you to eat, play, and sex so much better. If you haven't already, please head to eatplaysex.com where you can subscribe to the show, connect with me, and read more about how you can up-level your sex, love, and vitality. Now, a bit about our fantastic guest today... Dr. Mary Pardee is a naturopathic medical doctor and a certified functional medicine doctor who specializes in integrative (laughs) gastroenterology and hormone balancing. Woo! That is a mouthful. I don't know if I've ever had that much in my mouth at one time. But she's also the founder of Modern Med a telemedicine and virtual wellness company that provides medical and health services to clients from the comfort of their own homes which she also has an online gut health course that is chock full of accurate information and tips to help you on your gut healing journey that way i get it you're inundated with so many information i know i've been flooded with all the rabbit hole researching of gut health and like how this is attached to my brain so mary's gonna help us out she's gonna tell us what the truth is Thank you for taking that on and guiding us on this journey to figure this out. (laughs) Absolutely. There's so much out there. I I swear
2: I'm like flooded in the information that I receive. It's a lot. It's like drinking from a fire hose. And sometimes we need somebody to filter that. So it's more like drinking from like a tap faucet and digestible. And we can actually (laughs) like figure out what's useful to us. So that's definitely where, where I like to work. Yeah, it's true, and and these days
1: I feel like everybody is an expert. Like everybody and their mom is an expert. I put on Instagram that I'm having, you know, I'm just moving through some body healing, and everybody's like, "Oh, you have SIBO. Oh, you have, <laughs> you know, yeah. candida overgrowth. Oh, you have yeah. this. Oh, those symptoms. That means you have cancer." And I'm like, "Huh? I don't really want to know." <laughs>
2: It's too much. Sometimes, sometimes it's too overwhelming. And that puts Mm -hmm. us down into the spiral of like, it becomes more overwhelming. And I can't say like, it's more often than not people come to me and they have all of these ideas of what's going on and they've gone down every rabbit hole. And I actually think it's worsening their health because they're just trying to consume and solve. And like, they're spending most of their time looking up their health conditions versus eat play and sexing, right? Like just being. And I think that is definitely part of the process that that leads to chronic disease. I think that's
1: a really good point. It's almost like we find safety in intellectualizing everything and searching out the truth and what the root cause is. But like you just said, if we just take care of what we're eating and we play more, we enjoy our lives more, that reduces the stress, which is actually causing a lot of the issues to start <laughs> or overworking.
2: hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's why on my questionnaires, my intake forms, one of the things is, is um, purpose. Do you have a purpose? Like, do you know why you're here? Do you have passions? Do you have hobbies? Um, I can really tell by like some of those lifestyle and just like happiness questions um, where somebody is in their health journey. Um, Because if you only have one thing to focus on, the things that are going wrong in your health and like what isn't serving you, and you don't have the things to focus on that bring you joy, that increase serotonin, um, that really change us from a neurotransmitter level, then you're going to experience more pain. Um, You're going to be kind of stuck in that cyclone cycle of, you know, discomfort and I am my sickness and, and everything that you talk about, I know on your show too.
1: Yeah. Over-identifying with your sickness. Yeah. Mm-hmm, this is who mm-hmm. I am, which some people don't even realize how that is serving them a purpose itself. You know, mm-hmm. you're talking about purpose, but it's like, if yeah. I hold on to this illness, this happens in in therapy as well. And, and side note, I love that you're combining the two, like the, that you just brought that up. Cause if a person is identifying with, you know, their illness, it, can create like a a victim story or everybody support me or take care of me or look at me or attention to me than it is. and, And that's helping them in a way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I I asked that question and that is, you know, if you didn't have this illness or if you didn't have the symptom going on, you know, what would you lose? Like, what would you actually lose if this went away or what wouldn't be here if we got rid of this? Because there's almost always something that is actually serving the person. Um, and it doesn't mean that they still want it, but to understand that connection, that bond that they have with the sickness, I think is really important because we need to figure out, you know, what, do we do when that is gone, whether it's attention or whether it is, um, bonding with your partner, because, you know, you get to snuggle more, whatever it is. Um, but I think it's, it's really important. That's where, where you guys come in for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, speaking for myself in my twenties, I definitely was a work warrior. You know, I filled my time to the excessive and just kept up on caffeine. Right. Mm -hmm. And I struggled with so much gut issues at, at that age and realizing that that was serving me a purpose of, you know, Mm -hmm. so I didn't feel like a loser, like I would work really hard. And so, you know, it also helped me to avoid intimacy. So a lot of the gut stuff that I was dealing with was manifesting, um, as a result of those fears.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like my, my gut doesn't feel good. Like I don't want to have sex or I don't, don't touch me. Like I feel bloated or, you know, that there's some of that that we don't want. And then there's some, that's a protective layer. That's actually, you know, letting us not be intimate with people or protecting our hearts too. Um, and then, you know, your piece on the work, 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 I can totally relate to that. You know, that's (laughs) definitely why I dove into the mental health world. And I'm so fascinated by everything that you're talking about is because, you know, a lot of us that are workaholics, Um, What would happen if we stopped working is one question. You know, what is there that we're kind of filling, which I can relate to. And you're also, we're putting ourselves into sympathetic dominance and survival mode. And so we're Mm. always like looking for things that could go wrong. And we want to do, do, do accomplish more, Um, but we're not in the rest and digest mode. So gut symptoms are likely to be experienced when we're in that survival mode, because we're not digesting our food. We're not, you know, breaking down our nutrients. We're not in a place where our body wants to eat um, or should be eating, I should say.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I really want to dive into that piece. And I also really want to meet this baby Dr. Mary, the one who, who was a workaholic. Is there something, uh, you know, I oftentimes ask my guests if there's something that they knew, know now that they would have told their younger self. About whether it's sex, love, nutrition, what would you have told her? Mm.
2: Simply put, you are enough. Um, mm. I think that was like a big piece of it—is wanting to um, prove myself in the world, um, to myself and to others that you know I was smart, I could do it. Like I can, um, I can make money. I can do all the things. I can start a business. Um, but it all comes back to like, you are enough. Like I am enough right now without having a business without, you know, being financially successful or whatever it is. Um, and just really settling into that. And I think that was the process of me starting to find my authentic self and to be comfortable with just being, um, and that's a continual process, but I think it's a big one for me specifically.
1: Well, I think honestly, that's the cultural disease that we have, Mm. how Mm -hmm. oftentimes that comes into my office, you know, as we're working through some sort of um, past trauma or experience, the thought that, and belief that comes up is I'm not enough or I'm doing something wrong or I can't, you know? And so I think this, what you're sharing as so many people can be able to relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, on your own journey, how did you come to more of a resolution around that or what's been the process for you to discover, okay, I am enough?
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about that for a while. There's, I think a big one for me was figuring out who am I? I didn't get the wine glass memo, first of all. I feel like- Uh Oh, I do all pleasure, you know, like, I'm like, how can I make my water more pleasurable? Drink it in a wine glass. I <laughs> love that. I love that. Here I am drinking a regular glass. I'm feeling, um, anyway, not, enou- not enough. I'm not enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, it was figuring out who I was and I, I really thought I knew who I was. I'm sure I'll look back thinking that I knew who I was right now too. And I keep discovering mm-hmm. and, um, like unraveling pieces of me. But I think it comes back to that question of what would happen if I slowed down. And for me, the answer to that was, I didn't know who I was, like what I enjoyed doing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what brought me joy from a very simple, just like humanistic level. And so when I started to answer that question of who am I, like really, who am I? um, I had goals. I had aspirations. A lot of them were more materialistic and I don't think there's anything wrong with materialistic goals, Um, but I didn't have the real root, the foundation as well to be comfortable just sitting with myself. Mm. And so that was that was it. It was like digging in and really figuring out like, why am I here? What's really important to me? Like, who do I want to be with in terms of partnership? Who do I want to be as a partner? Mm -hmm. You know, do I want a family or do I want to be the entrepreneur who's traveling and building and in that mode? And I don't think there's a wrong answer, but It's whatever feels, you know, really authentically true to you. And I think I was lying to myself for, for a good number of years, thinking that it was grow, grow, grow bigger, better, more. And, um, it was really like, wow, I want to like live in the mountains, have a partner, have some horses and, and make good money and travel and have fun. Um, but not the emphasis as much on that as I thought it was going to be.
1: Yeah, so allowing yourself to desire what you desire, but finding the balance in it and realizing Mm -hmm. the complexity of who you are as multi-layered in each of those needing attention.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and when you were going through that process, so you were just describing to us a moment ago about how being in more of this sympathetic system in fight or flight mode versus parasympathetic. So if we're in a state of, I'm not enough, as, or even in that workaholic mode, which is fast mm-hmm. pace, right, mm-hmm. and having to be in fight or flight mode for survival. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you see that impacting your body, or how do you see this impacting your clients' body, your patients' body?
2: Yeah, and I've become the doctor that I am today because of my own journey. So it was definitely like a selfish journey, right? Um, I really wanted to figure out what was going on with myself. And so that's why I dove into all the research. And that's why I stress to all of you that find somebody who's already done it because it'll take some of the pressure off of you. Mm -hmm. Um, but I needed to, like, that was definitely like why I was on this planet was to just like go in deep into this category. And, um, and so, so for me, it was like uncovering all of these things that I could then help people with, um, what was the original question? I'm actually not realizing that I went through (laughs) tangents. I love tangents. That's flow. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, so recognizing how being in fight or flight mode versus being in parasympathetic mode, how is that impacting our body, our digestion? Um, Because I noticed, I guess I'll speak to, I noticed when I started on that journey, even breathing before I would eat, like I would sit down mm-hmm. in front of my plate and I would take some deep breaths. I would still feel the flutter of nervousness, almost like my body was still trying to go as fast as it typically.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And this is like, this is foundational. So this is like a ground zero of gut health is getting into a state where your body's ready to accept food. And and that that has to be the case. So if you just got into a fight, um, if you are doing like even something exciting, like crazy business exploration, or, you know, you just rode downhill mountain bikes and you've got all this adrenaline rushing um, to really realize like, are you in the state to eat yet? Or are you still in this survival excitement phase? Um, And the importance behind that is your body will start to produce digestive enzymes, stomach acid, all of these things to prep you for the food when it's ready to receive it. So my kind of rule of thumb is if you're not salivating, you're not ready to eat. And so if you're not in that state where you're like, oh, yeah, like I smell the food, I can like see it cooking, I can hear it. um, I'm excited. I've got like, you know, saliva increasing production in my mouth (laughs) and and you're in a state of parasympathetic rest and digest where you are breathing, you know, your heart's not racing. That's when you want to receive food and until you're there, then I tell people like do some mindfulness, like go for a walk, you know, lay down, put your hand over your heart and your stomach and just do a body scan like are you ready yet. And the more we can start to train that the quicker that we can get into that state, you know, it's kind of like the stress resilience where we can switch from one to the other and the nervous system is flexible. And, and so it's really important because if you're not, if you're still in that survival state, you're not producing the digestive enzymes. You're not producing saliva at a higher rate. Um, You're not producing enough stomach acid to break down your food. And so it's no wonder that we're left after eating, feeling bloated, gassy, like full stomach. Like, you know, we've all had like that brick in the stomach where it's like, whoa, why aren't things moving? It's just sitting there. It's been two hours and I feel like I just ate. Um, And that's because we're not ready. And we're still trying to go, go, go. And our body hasn't switched into that more restful digestive um, part of the nervous system.
1: And what a culture we've created around this. You know, we're sitting in front of Netflix, watching like the most action-packed movies that are causing anxiety in our bodies while we're eating mm-hmm. <laughs> or mm-hmm. racing to the next thing, eating in our car. So it's getting foundational as getting present because yeah. it impacts the way that we're digesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it comes back to evolution and like ancestral biology. So if you look at like what we were evolved to do, we're Mm -hmm. evolved to eat as a tribe, like in circles around a fire. And, and what that means is that conversations are actually good for digestion because they slow us down so that we're not just shoveling in food by ourselves. Um, but the conversation should also be ideally like supportive and happy versus a, an argument, which is not, what's meant to happen around the fire circle, but conversational, like actually having a social moment that slows us down. That makes us really present. If you look at the blue zones where people are more likely to live hundred or older mm-hmm. around the globe, socialization during eating is extremely common. You know, you see people gathering in groups to have meals and the meals are a lot longer than they are here in the U S where we're, you know, going through a drive through a picking something up and it's gone before the time we're home.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And one, as I've been moving through again another cycle of taking care of my body and slowing down and taking care of my gut. I put this to Instagram and I was like, okay, so I'm being a little more quiet on Instagram because I'm just, you know, stepping away from all the, all that to just take care and be present. And I got, swear to God, I got a flood of like everyone and their mom and their grandma giving me the, the advice or telling me that they are experiencing IBS or Candida or SIBO or, you know, like... Any, this whole number of different things and everybody telling me that that's what it is or it's mm. parasites this, and it, it made me even more stressed out because I was like, oh my God, I'm not doing enough or I'm not, you know, what do I do? What direction do I go? It's really mm. overwhelming. So for anybody out there who's reading a million articles or listening to a million podcasts, where would you direct them to go? start with mindful eating and then what?
2: Yeah. And then if you, so my ideal would be, you know, go to work with a doctor one-on-one naturopathic functional medicine, somebody in the integrative world, if you've already seen your conventional doctor and it's not like easily explained, you know, um, there's an, in, yeah, exactly. And then everybody like, okay, says, so IBS. What, right. <laughs> um, There's an in-between though too. So if you're not able to work with a practitioner one-on-one in the beginning, you can also start with an elimination diet, which is what I usually will put people on before when we're waiting for labs to come back, and um, and that's really going back to a whole foods diet. But there's a few other things that you want to do with gut health complaints specifically. So we're going to take out gluten. We're going to take out dairy. We're going to take out eggs. We're going to take out corn, grains, legumes, nuts, as well as a big one for people with IBS, constipation, bloating specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're healthy. So our eggs. So we want to put them back in, but we're going to take them out initially. We'll take out nightshades as well. Um, so the, the, the question, the heck am I eating? Now? You're eating like lean, clean proteins. Um, so wild caught, fish, you know, pasteurized chicken, um, grass fed beef as well. And then vegetable wise, we really want to cook s- vegetables. So like sauteed, mushy, pureed, um, treat your baby, your stomach, like a baby, And so, you know, you would never feed a baby raw lettuce. So we're going to get rid of raw vegetables for a little bit and instead doing like sweet potato puree or, um, or broccoli puree or broccoli soup, you know, things like that. And so we really want to baby our stomach for a little bit and focus on soups, stews, mushy foods. Um, and then we're going to do that for 30 days at least and see how we feel symptoms are resolved, great, then you're going to start to reintroduce the foods, especially the ones that are the most nutritious that we ideally want in a balanced diet. So, you know, making sure we put back eggs in, if we can do okay with eggs and do it really methodically. So you're waiting three days between introducing new food groups to see, is this a problem for me or no, this isn't a problem for me. I'm fine with it. And, and you'll see like, okay, I can do this. But when I put back in corn, like I had issues. And so you may only end up eliminating one food group. Um, And then I always reinforce to people, try three months later to put that one in too and see if you can. So it's not that everybody needs to be gluten-free for the rest of their life, Mm -hmm. Um, but you might want a little period, like a little hiatus where you fix it, you repair things, then you can reintroduce it later. Mm. So that's really, I think like a really great place to start. Um, and then the other like tips are doing a 12 night or 12 hour overnight fast, where you're giving your body a rest from food and trying to avoid snacking so much in between meals. So you're really having rest from intaking food. Um, food intake is essential. Like we get our nutrients from it, but it's also a little bit of a stress on the body, especially if there's any inflammation in the GI tract. So sticking to three meals per day and having that 12 hour overnight fast can be really, really helpful. Um, so that's where I go with people. And then if you're still having issues after that elimination diet, go see somebody like, don't try to fix this on your own. It's going to be faster. It's going to be likely more financially feasible because you're not going to try a million supplements. Um, so that's really where I I suggest, like if you have tried these couple things, then then ask somebody for help.
1: Isn't that funny? We spend hundreds of dollars on supplements instead of going to a doctor. (laughs) Like. Mm Yeah. That was, there. <laughs> the, that was the most detailed elimination diet I've ever heard. I'm not even kidding. I've spoken to, I've interviewed and people give me the basics, but the way that you just described that was so, was so good. I'm like, Oh, okay. That is a point. I haven't made baby food for myself <laughs> Maybe yeah. I'll try that next. Yeah. Um, there's, and, and so as we're talking about the importance of what you're eating and how you're digesting. But also there's a lot of research I've been um, listening to about how your gut health impacts your brain health. So your mental health. And one thing that I've noticed as I've come off of like all these things, including coffee and sugar, I had a lot of anxiety that came mm. up and a lot of nervousness that came up, which isn't a usual part of my daily life. But I was like, oh my God, I'm going crazy. I'm losing my mind, you know? And, and I wondered if that had anything to do with what I was doing or like with the gut or if maybe some of these, mental health issues that people are struggling with is actually related to the gut health.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a period in my career where I thought the gut and the gut microbiome were like the sole cause of most things going on in the body. And now as with what we always do, right, I'm in somewhat more of a balanced state where I think it plays a role. I think the microbiome is incredibly interesting and research keeps coming out about it, Um, but I don't think it's the one thing. And so, you know, let me talk about what is the gut microbiome first of all, so people understand, but it's a collection of the microorganisms in our gut. And so think of the gut as like this city and we've got fungi, we've got bacteria and we have protozoa. We have all of these different microorganisms that are normal inhabitants of our gut. We want them there. They're commensals a lot of the time, meaning that they give us things and we give them a place to live. Um, And the interesting thing about this kind of city of microorganisms is like little factories in the city, they all produce different things. We all, you know, they give us things and they have, you know, just like we have a bike shop and we have this and we have that. We get short-chain fatty acids, we get things that actually change BDNF in the brain, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor from these bacteria that actually help to make new neuronal connections so that we can learn, so that we can grow, we can learn new skills. Um, but they also can affect inflammation in the brain. So our gut bacteria, depending on who's there, if we have something called lipopolysaccharides that are released, that can actually cross the blood-brain barrier and increase inflammation in the brain, then we're more likely to have changes in mood. So that's low. I, you know, people with IBD possibly is why one of the reasons is m- much higher rates of depression in people with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease not just because of the actual disease process that affects quality of life, like how we move about the world, but also because there may be some neuroinflammation that's taking place. Um, And we know that neuroinflammation and depression and mood changes can can definitely be there. But I think it can be really empowering because, you know, we have control in part about our gut microbiome with what we eat you know, our lifestyle, how much stress we decide to put it under. Um, So these are all things that we can modulate. And so ideally, you know, we're really putting back the foundations of health, which it all comes back to. It's like exercise, eating vegetables, diversity of our, of our food are really the things that impact our gut microbiome as well. Mm,
1: yeah. And do you, cause I read a lot about probiotics and prebiotics too. How important is that or, or how much of a weight does that play a role?
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I also think we're at like the very beginning of the gut microbiome research. So I think Mm. we think we know a lot, um, whereas the researchers themselves will say we don't know a ton. (laughs) Um, And so we can sequence the microbiome so we know who's there, but we don't know who's making what yet in Mm. terms of like what the factories are actually producing For the most part, we know some of it, um, but we also don't know when they interact with each other, what's happening. Um, And so probiotics come in and we've had a lot of research on probiotics in rat models and animal models and what they do for, you know, rat anxiety. For instance, there's a strain of bacteria called lactobacillus rhamnosus forget the strain number, but there's a strain of that one. Nobody cares. So impressive. Like, oh, yeah. I'm so impressed. <laughs> um, but there, there was a study done on rats that this one decreased anxiety in a rat. Now I've, I've tried these with people probiotics for mood. I haven't gotten like crazy results yet. So I'm mm. still like hesitant, you know, I'm willing to experiment because there's, you know, no negative side effects with a lot of these things, but sure. haven't really figured out like if they're actually going to correlate. Clinically, like, are people actually going to feel better on them or not? Um, or should we be really changing the diet to produce more of a certain metabolite, like a productive end product, like actually something that they produce that helps mood? You know, yeah. So we'll keep looking into it, and I think it could be really exciting. We're not quite there yet, so um, I think it's it's a worth a shot, just experimenting. But make sure if you're going to choose a probiotic, you don't just go to Whole Foods. You choose a random one off the shelf and you take it for mood because if the strains in that probiotic haven't been studied for anything to do with mood and you're actually taking one that helps with diarrhea, but you're constipated, um, then, you know, you're not going to do any good. So it's easy to throw away money with probiotics, but I think that in the future we could have a lot more tailored approaches to them.
1: Wow. That is incredible. Cause uh, it's, You know, we are given these messages of take your probiotic, take your daily probiotic, but there's so many different ones that they say. And so I always wonder if like, are we making this worse or are we making this, are we actually targeting? And so you're saying it's important to know what you are using this for to determine which one you're taking.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. We know that with other things, right? If you have vitamin D deficiency, you're not going to go take vitamin A. (laughs) Um, and so with probiotics, we don't know enough about them. And there's some benefits to multi-strain products, meaning they have a bunch of strains in them and they could be just like generally beneficial. Um, I'm not a huge fan for everybody should take a probiotic. I just don't think it's the case. I think we should be able to get most of that through the diet. If Mm -hmm. we're like treating something. So I treat a lot of people with inflammatory bowel disease or IBS, then I want to be really targeted and say, okay, you have constipation. This one's been proven for constipation. We're going to use this first, or you have ulcerative colitis and E. coli missle, 1917, mm-hmm. also 1917, ulcerative colitis. We're going to give you that one. We're not going to give you, you know, lactobacillus, whatever, because we just found it at, at the supermarket. So I think we need to be more targeted to save money and actually think, see if things are going to work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I
2: love that. And now
1: as we're talking about this I'm wondering even how this would impact our hormone production. And I say that because I get women who come in struggling with no sexual desire. Hmm. And so I'm asking them about their lifestyle or, you know, even what they're eating, their nutrition. Um, I don't know enough about, obviously that's out of my scope of range to talk about hormone production, but I, I, I really feel like there's some sort of correlation there.
2: Yeah. Gut and hormones have, have a role. So they would definitely work together with, with lack of libido, you know, we want to dive into so many different areas. Like we want to see, like, are you deficient in iron, um, your field? Like, do you have a good relationship with your husband or do you not <laughs> want to have sex with him? You won't have a libido if you've been fighting all the time. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I think, hormones can definitely play a huge role and we'll hopefully dive into that with libido for sure. Um, And then the gut hormone relationship that I've really teased apart from the research is, is more related to, to IBS than anything. Um, And it's just in terms of like progesterone you produce a lot of during the second phase of your cycle and that slows motility down. It's also why women when they're pregnant are much more likely to have reflux because progesterone is much higher And so things move the other way, they move up instead of down, Mm -hmm. and then we get indigestion and reflux. And we're more likely to be constipated before our periods because progesterone is, is higher and slows things down versus Mm -hmm. when we get our period, we're more likely to have diarrhea. Um, so, so there's some intricacies there for sure with the gut and hormones.
1: It's amazing. Let's, let's expand more on this hormone talk. Cause I love talking hormones. It just makes a, a lot of things make sense mm-hmm. because me as a bleeding woman, there are definitely, I go through the periods of time where I f- literally think that I'm crazy or that I'm like the worst person in the world. I'm like, why am I such a bitch in my head? You know? And it's just like <laughs> all my work, all my self-work is out the window. And then like three days later, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I feel much better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or like, I'm really interested in this guy one minute and then not interested in another.
2: (laughs) For sure. And there's evolutionary reasons behind that. And it's fascinating. Yeah. Let's dive in. Um, we can start with like hormones in a relationship, which I think is fascinating Ooh, because we'll start to unpack yes. other things in there. Yes. Um, I created a little acronym and it's not the best. So if anybody out there is really good with acronyms and they hear this and they come up with another one, please DM me. But the, the <laughs> acronym that I have right now is SEAR, s e a r. And so there's four letters for four weeks of a, a woman's cycle. So, you know, we're assuming a 28 day cycle for most women um, for four weeks of that. And so, this is a really important conversation if you are dating a woman. So, either woman dating a woman, man dating a woman, if you're a woman yourself, um, or if you have a woman in your life. And so, it covers like a big percentage of the population. <laughs> And I think it's something that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, but I think it can really strengthen relationships and it can help us understand who we are as women and why we are the way we are certain times of the month. and um, and it can help us understand our significant others if we're dating a woman or if we have, you know, a woman in our life, if we live with a woman. So the first week, that's S it's for self-care. So this is really when we want to nurture ourselves more or nurture our partner more as well. So this is day one to like seven. This is like the, your period basically. So day one is the first day of bleeding, right? From a hormonal perspective, this is when hormones, estrogen and progesterone are at their lowest. Mm. And because of that, estrogen relates to serotonin. So with higher estrogen, we have higher serotonin, but now we have low estrogen. So we have low serotonin production. Um, That's going to affect our mood for sure. So we're just going to be a little bit more somber, not as giggly, not as outgoing either. Estrogen is really like if we think of estrogen as a character. It's like rock star, go get them. Like, I can do anything, <laughs> is estrogen. True. And so estrogen is not there. So, this is kind of like, mm, I can't do everything. I don't want to do everything. I'm tired. Um, just, And just a
1: mush, a puddle of mush. Just- yeah.
2: Yeah. And and then that's okay. So I think if we understand why it's happening and it's not that, okay, how do we raise estrogen? This is a normal part of being a woman. And Mm -hmm. we have these fluctuations, which is the divine feminine. It's ever changing. It's flowing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so instead it's like, how can we support ourselves? How how can we raise um, serotonin naturally, just like subtly, like maybe buying ourselves flowers or having, you know, our significant other buys us flowers during this mm-hmm. time of the cycle, you know, you make dinner at home, you watch a funny movie to laugh um, you can focus on like 5-HTP supplement-wise may be helpful during this time if your doctor mm. thinks that's good. You're also more likely to have carbohydrate cravings because serotonin is lower. And so maybe not doing keto during this time, but eating a little bit more carbs that are healthy for you, like sweet potatoes, things like that. Um, also, serotonin helps to reduce pain. And so with this lower serotonin level, we can experience higher levels of pain. So people with IBS may have flares during this time, or we may just feel like kind of like achy in general, um, obviously cramping during the period, but focusing on magnesium rich foods. So bring your loved one, dark chocolate that's high in magnesium or nuts and seeds, avocados, like doing thoughtful things um, during this time in the cycle can be really, really helpful. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Be be kind. Be kind. (laughs) Yeah. So S is self-care. And then as we exit that first week of the cycle, estrogen starts to rise. And so like our rock star, like hormone starts to come out. And this is where we get the second week, which is E. This is like excitability. Um, This is like romance, sex, rock and roll. Like this is like where we really start to come into our feminine, um, like sexual energy, like primal energy. And this is because estrogen is rising. um, Serotonin is going to start to rise as well. And we really want to have sex during this time. So we'll see boosts in testosterone as well. And the reason behind this is because our body is getting ready to ovulate. And so when we ovulate, we're fertile. We want to procreate. That's why we're here. And so your body cannot fool biology. You'll want to have sex more. And, and so this is a time where you can really like dive into your sensuality, and if you're dating a woman, this is a great time to bring her out to a club, to go dancing, like to support her in this sensuality process. And she's going to feel much sexier during this time of her cycle. Mm. So if you're like, if you're planning a big night, do you want to take a woman out to like a fancy dinner and dancing on day two of her cycle? or day like nine, 10, the answer is day nine (laughs) or 10, for sure. It's week two. She Um, doesn't even want to leave the house at day two.
1: (laughs) Not so much. Go be with your other friends for a bit. Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so she'll also have extra patience during this time. So if you forget to pick the kids up from school, you might have a little bit of a hall pass here. Um, she's going to be more flexible because estrogen is going to help, you know, buffer that, um, and make her feel just easier going. Um, and so, you know, this is a great time for all those like fun things, sexy clothes, whatever it is to, to support it. And your other question with, you know, changes in who we're attracted to, this is where Mm -hmm. this starts to come in because we're more attracted at this phase in our cycle as women to men that have more defined features. So angular face structure, more masculine, you know, the brow that's a little bit more pronounced. Um, because we are in the period of procreation. So Mm -hmm. we want to get impregnated by somebody who is more masculine at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, there's actually a little caution there. If you're dating, you know, and you fall in love with somebody during this phase of your cycle, then really see, are they also a good partner to raise the children with? Or did you just want to get impregnated by them? This is super evolutionary. You know, we're more likely to want to be with somebody during this phase that we want to have their DNA yeah. versus them as a father. And uh, so they're two different things.
1: Yeah. I wonder if that's similar for women who date women too, because if, if it's more of like attracted to women that are more of the, um, I don't know. Yeah. Super mm, sexually attractive versus, or like the
2: bad girl, <laughs> I don't know. Versus. It's definitely, Yeah. It's definitely more on um, in my mind, it's a little bit more on physical appearance uh-huh. here versus, you know, some of the deeper qualities that we look for. So I think it could be extrapolated to both men and women. Unfortunately, yeah. all the research is really on, you know, heterosexual couples, mm-hmm. but more and more will come out on different.
1: Yeah, our heteronormative culture. Mm-hmm. You know, we got
2: to catch up to that. <laughs> we do. Yeah. We totally have to. Yeah. Um, so this is this is week two. And so week three, we're going into A. So seer is A, and this is attachment. Mm. So week three from an evolutionary perspective, this is when we could be pregnant. We don't know yet. Um, and, and so we want to start to bond with whoever we are with in case we are pregnant. So we have a father to raise our children with, or we have a significant other to raise our child with. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this is kind of like the cuddle bug cozy attachment, um, phase, This is also a great time to go in deep, like spiritually, emotionally with a partner. You have progesterone starting to rise in week three and progesterone, um, talks to GABA in the brain, which is your calming anxiety, reducing neurotransmitter. And so you're more likely to feel emotionally attached to your partner. Um, you're more likely to want to kind of hang out and chill a little bit more because progesterone is really calming and estrogen is going to start to. To reduce during this period as well. And you'll also get increases in hunger because estrogen sensitizes your cells to insulin. And when we have more insulin resistance during this phase, we're more likely to have cravings and hunger start to arise. Um, so making sure you pack a snack for your significant other if you're going for a long trip or you're not gonna try to, you know, fast in the middle of the day, I think is really important. So that is week three three and then week four is more, um, rest. So this is the R, -hmm. this is rest, um, early to bed, you know, both hormones now are starting to drop here. Um, this is also the time, like you had some leeway in week two with getting away with things, you know, if you, if you fucked up, Week four, if you fuck up, you're more likely to have a more irritable partner that has like a shorter fuse, um, less tolerance because estrogen is dropping. And so just being understanding, I think, at that point, where you know, if your partner does act more irrationally or more irritable, understanding that it's likely hormonal and physiological. And then us as women, we also have to take responsibility for that. So it doesn't give us a hall pass. But if we can understand what's going on internally, we can be like, oh, you know. I need to take a break. Like I need to not have this conversation right now. I need to go be by myself. Yeah. Um, and so I think that understanding period is really important in week four.
1: Yeah, because then you can have compassion for yourself, but also have material to communicate with. I know mm-hmm. for me, sometimes I get, I'll get, i get on edge and I'll communicate that. I'll, I'll say- um right now I'm noticing I'm more on the edge of myself and so I might snap and I don't mean to so I just I'm going to be conscious of that but I also want you to know that that might happen and it it almost like the moment that I say it it almost as if it dissipates in my body Mm -hmm. because it's brought to the attention that it's there
2: yeah Exactly. Understanding and just like having a knowing of what goes on brings us so much peace. It's just like that understanding piece, you know, doesn't mean it has to go away, but it, it can totally self dissolve. And for me, what I've noticed is that if I have a partner who also understands that, first of all, it's the most attractive thing ever when I, you know, you have a partner who um, is like, Hey, you know, I really, I see you right now and gives you a hug because they understand what's going on Mm -hmm. um, versus like, Hey, why are you like this right now? And so I think that's like next level. It's like, okay, you, you know who I am, you know, my cycle, because we're intimate partners Mm -hmm. and you know, that I'm on week four and I'm a little a little bit more irritable. So you're giving me a hug instead of being like, you know, why are you being such a bitch today? Yeah, um, And so I think that that's how we can really evolve as a couple is to, to, to know each other really intimately, but then to know ourselves first.
1: Yeah, that's so important. And I wonder, you know, as somebody is, so you're talking about in a relationship with somebody, because mm-hmm when you're in a relationship, you're a lot more intimate. And like you said, you're more likely to know their stage or where they're at near their flow in their flow. But what about if somebody's first starting to date somebody?
2: Yeah. Well, I think it depends on how comfortable you are talking about this stuff, but, um, you know, for me, I'm heterosexual. So if if it was a guy that was talking to me and if he was like, Hey, like where are you in your cycle? Like I want to start to learn your cycle. I think that's amazing. And I oh think God, that's I'd like be really so wet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's so confident, right? Like men aren't scared of a cycle, but actually like want to know about it because it can definitely benefit them and they can plan things accordingly and really support a woman throughout that. And for me, that's the divine masculine is like supporting mm-hmm. a woman through her changes, whatever those like changes, fluctuations are. Um, and and so I think that it's a really cool conversation to have in the beginning, even if it's early stages. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, when I dated my ex, like he had access to the app that trapped tracked my cycle. He actually didn't need it; he knew my cycle better than I did, wow. and he could like be like, "Oh, like we're midway, like we're peaking now, like, we're coming <laughs> down the hill." Like I can see, like okay, we're coming down the hill, um, and and warning, like if you're in a fight with a woman you don't say you must be on week four of your cycle. Like that's not a good, that's not Mm. a good, good phrase. You just can think it and then you can give her a hug, you know, for sure. But um, don't use that as like part of your, your argument.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. You will get smacked if that is like the minimal thing that'll happen to you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think also um, as a woman to be able to, communicate where you're at as well. It's become a lot easier for me to say, oh, I'm bleeding right now, or, oh, I'm about to bleed right now so that it helps them to know. And I say this with all of my guy friends too. And I had this thought the other day, I was writing a post about this, but how often or how it used to be that we would hide when we were bleeding, you know, the tampons would be hidden on our hand as we were going across the, you know, the classroom. So none of the guys saw mm-hmm. it, or we would hide, you know, in these little compartments, or, um, it was such an embarrassment if we bled through our pants, or it was such an embarrassment, like, you know, to talk yeah. about it and, and it creates shame, you mm-hmm. know, perpetuating that creates shame. And then nobody can really understand us. We're like yeah. inhibiting ourselves.
2: Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I would actually love to hear your input in terms of like early like father-daughter interactions with, you know, having, it's usually mom who talks to the daughter about her period, but having open communication with the dad too. So there's not like this male-female shame, which I think is more common than, you know, shame around asking a woman for a tampon or something like that. But I'm guessing it has something to do with, you don't really talk to your dad about your period, especially when you're young. Like the thought of that was like, oh my God.
1: Mortifying. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And dad doesn't go to the store to get the tampons or the or the pads. Dad doesn't talk to you. And and maybe that a big part of that is because that generation, how much did they actually know about it to be able to communicate that to us? Mm-hmm. I don't know that they were given much education to feel competent in being able to have those conversations.
2: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And this, and this things could change now too. So it could be interesting to see like, if we can, you know, start to have more open conversations with, you know, dad and daughter, but also just like in school where, Mm. where boys are present. I remember when I was in middle school, um, during the sex ed days, girls go in one room to the library and learn about your period. And then boys go into another room. I don't know what they're learning about, like masturbation, maybe probably not. Not at my school. (laughs) Um, they're learning about their puberty, I guess, for sure. Um, But I think like, why don't we have that discussion together? Like, why are we segregating at that point? Cause we're going to be growing up with males in our life and females in our life. And so we should know about each other. It shouldn't be like, okay, girls, we're going to talk about tampons. Don't tell the boys. Like it's starting Mm -hmm. that shame cycle really early. Right. And it
1: also creates this divide of men and women not understanding each other. You Mm -hmm. know, this whole argument of men are from Mars and women are from Venus, but we're actually a lot more similar than we are different. And if we keep separating each other, like what you're saying, it further divides us instead of recognizing, you know, our similarities or even just understanding the differences together so that it's not such a mystery or no, I can't understand women, you know, (laughs) you know, women are crazy, whatever it's, it's it's all here. And I think it's podcasts, like you and I, like what we're having right now and Instagram and social media is where people are having these conversations and bringing these topics forward. That's helping to change that cultural
2: narrative. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we just need to have more conversations. We need to start talking about it and, and it's interesting, too, if you start to dive into it. And I think it's really stuff that like men want to know this stuff. They want to be able to understand women better and women should understand women better, too. So mm-hmm. it's not that women know all of this either. I think it's been really kind of hidden and not discussed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a whole nother talk of like healing the trauma
1: of women against women. Mm-hmm. Just... Yeah. That's, a big one. My, yeah, that's a big one. I'm like, <laughs> we ain't oh got time for that. <laughs> that might be a whole nother podcast <laughs> episode. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, speaking of conversations on socials, I have a couple of questions from followers here. Uh, if you follow me on Instagram at Sex Love Yoga, I take some of the followers' questions and I put them to my guest experts. So, a couple of these questions. I've got two questions here. The first one says, what does it mean when you have your period three times in one month with excruciating cramps? Okay, that's a big question for Dr. Mary, but maybe you can send her a direction.
2: Yeah, that's a big question. And so if you're if you're having it, you have very, very short cycles, right? And so especially three times in a month. Um, so progesterone likely is not high at all. So you probably have low progesterone, not ovulating so that you're getting these really short cycles. Um, and I mean, that's just a guess as well. So what you wanna do is you wanna see a doctor, you wanna get testing, you wanna see what's going on. And what's interesting now is that we have more tests than just a blood test for hormones. And so for something like this, I would really suggest... Um, a cycle mapping test. And there's a couple companies that do this, Um, Dutch, which is precision analytical is the name of the company. And then ZRT is another hormone testing company, Um, but you can actually track your cycle, estrogen and progesterone for 30 days to see, you know, are we getting rises at all? Are we getting ovulation? Do we think it's even happening? Um, And it can give you a little bit more understanding about what's going on there, but that's where you'd want to start for sure. um, Mm. Before you just like, play around with things but there's definitely things that can be done
1: yeah or self-diagnosing yourself yeah Mm -hmm. for sure um
2: number two struggling with chronic candida
1: for eight months and i also have endo Ooh, endometriosis is another thing i would suggest for the first person to to look into or ask your doctor about because that's a common one that i see with women absolutely Yeah. So this person Candida for eight months, I've heard Candida so many times. I don't even fully comprehend what Candida
2: is. Right. So Candida albicans, um, Candida is a yeast, right? So um, the the question I always have when somebody comes to me and they say, I have Candida is, how do you know that? Like, Mm -hmm. how do you know that? Were you told that by somebody? Is it just something that you think because you're bloated and you don't feel good? Um, candida was a huge diagnosis in like the nineties, early two thousands, where it like really just marketing wise, I think really went over and it doesn't mean like fungal overgrowth is definitely a thing. So it can be a thing, but there's, there's certain questionnaires that we can use. So the FRDQ seven is a questionnaire that can rate likelihood of fungal overgrowth in the intestines. There's organic acids tests that you can look at metabolites that may indicate candida or fungal overgrowth as well. Um, but if you're just guessing and you don't really have a significant reason to believe that, then I would say, figure out what it actually is first. So do a SIBO breath test where you're looking at, um, bacterial overgrowth possibility. Um, do a test for intestinal permeability to see if you have leaky gut or intestinal permeability. Um, see if you have post-infectious IBS as well. So do some diagnostic work and figure out like what is elevated. And what's not? Do you have hypothyroidism, which can cause all those same complaints there? Um, so you want to dig deeper and see what's actually going on. If it is fungal overgrowth, then you can definitely heal that through antifungals, either prescriptions or herbs that help to treat fungal overgrowth. But definitely ask you know, where you're getting it. First, before you go down the treatment route. Mm. And then, um, with endometriosis, the reason I said the testing part too, cause with endometriosis, IBS is extremely common as well as SIBO. And so I would make sure that, you know, the reason before that. Um, so endometriosis, you can have endometrial tissue outside of the uterus and endometriosis. And a lot of the times we'll see it sometimes in the intestinal tract, which is where you can get pain, bloating, discomfort, which is why IBS and endo are so closely linked. Um, and so for that, you know, for the whole picture, both the GI symptoms and the hormones, I'd want to do advanced hormone testing to see is estrogen playing a role here. Do we have more of an estrogen dominant picture? And if we can actually help support progesterone, can we get, you know, increased, um, transit time. So things moving faster in the intestines, less bloating and, and can we make you feel hormonally better too? Mm -hmm. So I would do hormone testing and gut testing in that case.
1: Oh, that's so important. Yeah. That's great. I love everything that you said today. I'm feeling really inspired. My gut is happy. It's like, it's like, yay, we're going to make sweet potato puree, baby food. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love it. (laughs) So how can people find more about you? Um, I'm going to put links to your gut course, which is, I've, I've looked through it. It looks amazing. Um, Where can they connect with you?
2: Yeah, the gut health course is great if you can't work one-on-one with a functional medicine practitioner. So that's why I created that course. Um, We also at Modern Med, which is my telemedicine and um, health company. So we see people in person in LA. We also do virtual consults. um, But we have a team of three doctors where everybody specializes in hormones and gut health. And so if you have any of these issues, you can work with us one-on-one. We do complimentary phone consults as well. So if you're not sure if we're a good fit, then do a phone consult. We want you to feel really good working with us. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we don't think we would be helpful with your case, we know a lot of practitioners as well. So we're happy to refer out. Um, And the website for that is modernmed.com. It's M-O-D-R-N-M-E-D.com. And so that's a great way to to kind of see what we're doing. We've got a blog there as well. And then our social media is gonna be at dr.maryparty and then at Modern Med as well. And I do a lot of infographics there.
1: Yes, follow her on Instagram. I've saved a lot of her little infographics. They're great (laughs) and it's really easy to access. You can just scroll over her feed and find exactly what you need. So thank you so much, Mary, this was fun.
2: I had so much fun. I had fun. Next time I'm going to get my glass of wine though. Or water wine. (laughs) No, I think that was a Freudian slip. I think that's exactly what you meant. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Lovers, thank you again for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, hit subscribe and head over to eatplaysex.com to connect with me and grab my sexy guides. Because my goal here is to get you to eat, play, and sex better. So you can improve your sex life. Which will improve every aspect of your life. Until next time, keep it sexy.